Good morning. We're in James chapter 5. It's good to be with God's people today. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we love your word. It gives us perspective of heaven. Lord, this is bread to us. Father, as a church, we've committed to believing all of it, hearing the encouragement, the doctrine, and the correction at times. So this morning, we submit ourselves to the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the giving of us, uh, giving us this infallible word. We love you, Lord. Come on, church, tell them, I love you, Jesus. With all of me, I love you, Jesus. Speak to us, shape us. Be glorified in this region. We want to be vessels, Lord. In Jesus' most holy name, all the church said amen. Amen. We're in James 5, verse 1 through 6 today. Last week we talked about Ambrose as the Bishop of Milan. This, uh, remember he was the governor, uh, of Milan's northern region in the Roman Empire and he, uh, went to essentially break up a fight. The church was raging at each other and then trying to settle down a fight. They began to chant Bishop, uh, uh, Ambrose for Bishop. And Ambrose again was a governor with no theological education, but in the matter of two weeks went from being a political man to being the bishop, the head of all the churches in the region. And became one of the greatest thinkers, theologians, and definitely one of the best preachers uh, the church has ever known. He was the man that St. Augustine got saved under listening to his preaching. Well, it was one of the big stories from Ambrose's life is uh, the emperor that rose to power named Theodosius was the one who actually made Christianity the formal religion of Rome around the year 380. So Constantine made Christianity legal in 315. It was Theodosius who made it the official religion around the year 380. And Ambrose and Theodosius had a pretty good relationship. Uh, they lived in the same city. Uh, Ambrose thought highly of Theodosius. And um, for all practical matters, they were on good terms. But Theodosius was known for being a bit of a hothead. And um, it was in a season where he was changing some laws that they arrested a charioteer in the city of Thessalonica um, for, his sexual, for his sexuality, essentially. And when they arrested this charioteer, uh, the problem was is that uh, the Thessalonians really loved him. He was kind of the, the champion sportsman. And so they arrested him, and Thessalonica went crazy. And in their rage and in their riot, they murdered the governor of, of Thessalonica that um, Theodosius had put in charge. Now, again, Theodosius has a temper. And so he what he does is he... He calls, he goes, uh, sends his officials to Thessalonica and he establishes, he, he calls a great chariot race. And so 7,000 people, um, they, they rush, uh, to, to see this great race. And, and as the, the race gets ready to get started, they barricade the doors and Theodosius has everyone murdered inside the Colosseum. Now, Ambrose, uh, Ambrose is the bishop and it's, it's very normal for emperors, especially Roman emperors, to do crazy stuff, okay? They just do what they want to do. It's very normal. But Ambrose is the bishop, and, and Theodosius is a Christian, calls himself a Christian. He's acting like an emperor, acting totally normal for a Roman emperor, but Ambrose says you're acting totally out of line for a follower of Jesus. So Ambrose starts to write him letters, calling him to repent. He reminds him of Nathan rebuking David, uh, the prophet standing up to David and saying, you need to repent of your wicked deeds. And so Ambrose um, 
This is not common for a bishop to rebuke. No one rebukes the emperor. No one. But Ambrose uh, begins to write him letters. And eventually what Ambrose does is he essentially excommunicates Theodosius. He says, you will not come to the Lord's table. You will not receive communion until you publicly repent. Not, not quietly apologize, but the emperor of Rome, he says, until you publicly repent, I borrow you from the Lord's table. And Ambrose went toe to toe with Theodosius on this matter. Now, to his credit, he did publicly repent. And that was strange for the Roman Empire to have the emperor um, take off his royal garments. That was one of the things that uh, Ambrose required of him, that he would take off his royal garments, stand like the rest of the church, and repent and renounce the murder, the bloodshed that he had enacted upon the city of Thessalonica. Now, I, I thought about that story in Ambrose's life as I was pondering our text this week because, um, again... Theodosius was was acting culturally appropriate. It was totally normal for an emperor to murder anybody who got in his way. But Ambrose does not care what is culturally appropriate in the Roman Empire. Ambrose's statement to Theodosius here is, you will not stand before God and be judged on the basis of what is culturally normative. You need to hear me say that this morning. You will not stand before God and be justified on the basis of what culture did. Right? You, you, you're, you're not living totally devoted to your spouse. You don't get to stand before God and say, all of my neighbors had affairs. The standard is not the cultural norm for the Christian. The standard is the word of God. And, and Ambrose is just going to call his bluff. And Ambrose is funny his whole life because so many times he's, he kind of stands on his toes and he's like, what are you going to do? Kill me? Kill me. Um, but I'm not, I'm not going to bend. And we come to this text today and we've said that as we've studied the book of James, James is getting a little bit aggressive. Okay. He's been turning up the heat and the text we read today is by far his moment of total confrontation. And now he's frustrated. His tone is aggressive. And with Ambrose's posture here, James, I, I, James really doesn't care what you think. Um, and he's going to shoot straight. He's going to be confrontational. But he's going to call us to an eternal perspective. And that's what prophets should do. That's what the scripture does for us. It reminds us that this life is short. It's temporal. And we are not to live according to cultural norm. But we're to live with the perspective of heaven. And by the word of God. Let's read the text this morning and we'll, we'll dive into James's uh, hot moment here. Starting in verse 1. This is James chapter 5 verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Okay, tone change. You guys catch that? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming on you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. 
You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He who does not resist you. Now let's think again about where we are in the epistle. We, we said James is confronting, right? He confronted those who were driven by selfish ambition. Those who claimed to be wise, but they really just propped themselves up as the wise ones because they wanted power. He confronted those who in selfish desires were warring against one another. What causes wars among you? Isn't it that you're selfish in your hearts? Last week we read as he confronted those who boasted about tomorrow, acted like their days were their own. And he said, every day you live is a gift from God. You should live thankful and submitted to the sovereignty of God. He's confronting. But now again, we are in full prophet mode. When he starts using language like weep and howl for the miseries that come upon you, he's, 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 he's pulling a throwback. And, and sometimes people say, uh, prophecy ended with the Old Testament. The prophetic uh, declaration of judgment ended with the Old No, no it didn't. James is bringing it out right now for you. Amen. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He seems to have moved past a kind of pastoral tone. There's a lot of talk with commentators about whether or not James is speaking to believers here. It doesn't seem like he is. It's, it seems like he's he's not talking to the church, but he's confronting um this this group of people in society is using judgment language and this is what i want you to notice the past tense verbiage that he continually uses he says your riches have rotted your garments are moth eaten they he's the the actual event of judgment has not taken place but from the eternity perspective from the perspective of the prophet it's as good as done these people are still living in luxury, still living in great wealth in a day of trial. And James says, you, you stand there with proud hearts, comfortable, but, but the judgment is already set in stone. And prophets like to give us this kind of pressure. Think of John the Baptist saying, the axe is already laid to the root. He's, he's saying, there, the, the judgment is coming swifter than you think. There's an imminent day of judgment in which all people will stand before God. And James is saying, and all of your riches, all of your wealth, all of your garments, garments were a great sign of, of prosperity. Your garments have rotted out from under you. There's an intensity in his language. Now, from here, we recognize again that James is confronting that he's obviously turning up the heat with prophetic language. Let's ask the question, who is James confronting? Who are these people? It seems really clear when you read the passage slowly, if you take the time to chew on it, that James is addressing a, a group of people that you would call in the, in the Roman world landowners. It was not common to own land. But did you notice in the text he said things like, you held back the wages of the harvesters. So so he's talking to a group of people who are wealthy because they own land. Now, think of the Greco-Roman world. Agriculture is going to drive society. So if the large majority of the population has no land, they have no ability to produce crop. If you have no ability to produce crop, then you have no ability to achieve wealth. And and we live in a day, we've, we've said this, we're just going to keep saying it, we live in a day where economic mobility um, is wild. Where, and we, we champion the stories where someone grows up dirt poor, they work hard, they, they excel in their gifts, they steward their money well, and they achieve a, a, a status of blessing. We champion that, that's beautiful. But that was a totally foreign idea to the Roman world. 
Pliny said um, that in this day there were only three ways to be rich. To inherit your wealth, by which he meant to inherit land. To loan your money on a really high interest, which would be unethical. Or to marry into wealth. All the women in the room are going, we should have married a better, we should have married a rich man. Um, they were totally, the poor were totally locked into their class type. And the landowners were very comfortable in their prosperity. Now, I'm just trying to paint the picture for a second. Think of the parable of the, the workers in the vineyard. Remember when Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 20, verse 1 through 7. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Watch the language. The master of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again in about the sixth hour, and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. Now you remember the point of the parable is the master will pay each worker uh, this, the same wage, and they're frustrated at the master's dealings. But, but notice the context. There is a master of a house who owns a vineyard and the men of the city are standing around hoping that a landowner would hire them so that they can make some money. And we catch a glimpse of a very normative experience. Agriculture is driving the economy. The majority of folks don't own land. They have no access to wealth because of this fact. They all work in someone else's field. Now, obviously, there was no such thing as, as a mechanical equipment. And when you don't have any mechanical equipment, what you've got is what we call sweat. And there are even cases in Roman literature where the laborers or the slaves that are working fields are referred to as equipment. They're just the equipment. So we find that this class of people, the landowner, they are producing wealth. They're going to make olive oil and wine and all kinds of crop. And they need to employ... The, the normal, average, everyday person to work their fields. And what James is opposing is the landowners who have become so profit-minded that they're willing to take advantage of the less fortunate in order to pad their pockets. Now, there are cases in history, we have this, um, actually quite a few cases, where there would be a small town, and the landowners would pay the, the community very low wages to work their fields and produce a crop. They would store up the crop in a storehouse, refuse it, refuse to sell it to the, to the townspeople because they're going to export it at a greater price. And now the townspeople are starving because the crop produced in their land that they worked for belongs to a landowner who refuses to sell it to them. And there's, there's literal starvation happening in the city while someone's just padding their pockets. And James is calling this from a biblical perspective, wicked. Wicked. Totally normal. Totally culturally normal. James says it's wicked. Now, so we've talked about the people, the, the landowners. Let's, let's dive in just a little deeper into the sin. Okay, we've got profit 
condemning a group of people, landowners, let's dive just a step deeper into what is their actual sin. One, he told us that they held back wages from those who had mown their fields. So they're not paying the workers appropriate wages, at times not paying at all. Rather than paying the worker what was just and what was right, at times the landowner would cut cost by shorting individuals who had no ability to push back against them. They would gain wealth by stealing from their neighbors. He says that they have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. So these people live in luxury and in self-indulgence. They don't just live a blessed life. They live a lavish lifestyle. Self-indulgence. They're not just, not just that their needs are met, but they are gluttons for all things that is pleasure. All, all earthly pleasures. They are self-absorbed and self-concerned. They're fat and happy and willfully oblivious to the suffering that's happening around them. Again, James is going to say, you murder the righteous man, and he doesn't resist you. Church history liked to think of this righteous man here as being Jesus. That they murdered even Jesus when he refused to resist. It doesn't seem to be what James had in mind here. The idea, that some commentators suggest again, that they're murdering the righteous man by working him to death, not paying him a wage, and then holding back the crop so that he has nothing to feed his family. What's the heart of the sin? The heart of the sin is a love of wealth, a love of prosperity, a love of comfort, a love of pleasure. The heart of the sin is is not living with an eternal perspective. Jesus says you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. And the idea here is, and the commentators just, even in church history, just kind of drive this point home. The idea here is, is that when you get to a position, church, where you've allowed your heart to, to covet, to love money, to, to cherish earthly pleasure, you actually become blind to the suffering of your neighbor. A love of wealth produces spiritual blindness. A willful, spiritual looking away. Now here's the problem. Here's the problem. You and I are the richest people who have ever lived in all of history. We want to talk about the fact that we are going to be judged not on the basis of what's culturally normative, but on the basis of what God gave us in Scripture. So you and I are wealthy. Historically speaking, wealthier than any people that have ever lived. We need to hear the rebuke and listen and consider whether or not we've allowed the pursuit of wealth that is culturally normal to produce in us an eternal blindness. Because when you allow the scripture to have its way with you, to have its way with your heart, you recognize that, that, that you know this, your, your money's not, you could put it in your casket if you want, but it ain't going with you. And you, you could store up all your wealth and, and big, say, I need a bigger warehouse. This is from the parables. I need a bigger warehouse to store up the crop. And God could take your life in a moment. Somebody could steal your crop, steal your money, steal your retirement. 
If you become so focused on just gaining wealth to achieve status or comfort or to indulge your flesh and earthly pleasures, you have lost what the prophets call, or Elena Ravenhill used to pray, and I've prayed this for years, Lord, stamp eternity on my heart. You've lost an eternal perspective. What do we do as the richest people who have ever lived in a society that says, you need more, you need more, you need more? Well, largely what the church done is said, oh yeah, we need more, we need more, we need more. But again, you're going to be judged on the basis of the teaching of Scripture. This is one of the reasons that, for there, there are doctrinal reasons, theological reasons why I believe tithing is a New Testament principle. But one of the reasons, the praxis, or the practical reasons I believe tithing is a gift from God. I believe tithing is a gift from God. Because it requires you, every month, to say to your money... You don't own me, and I'm going to I'm going to cut the first tenth off, dedicate it to the Lord in obedience, and every month I am facing the God Mammon, the God of money, and I am saying, "You will not possess me. You will not possess me." One of the first telltales for whether or not you're spiritually sick is how you feel about your money. How you feel about your money. And if your if your posture is preacher, don't talk about money, don't touch my money. I ain't giving to nothing. I've been around people who say every charity is just a fraud, and I'm and I know actually know that there are some charities that you need to. I, I would do your due diligence to check who you're giving your money to. I've also uh, some of my best friends work in the jungles of the Amazon every day, sweating with worms, serving kids who are totally malnourished, preaching the gospel while we live perfectly comfortable and many of us have no intent on ever looking around to see how you can serve God in your hour with your finances. The the big part of the sin is that wealth makes you self-absorbed. The love of wealth makes you self-absorbed, spiritually dull and blind. You think this life is all there is and James is saying your riches will rot He's really echoing Jesus saying, don't store up your wealth on earth where moths eat away and where rust destroys. That's the teaching of Jesus. Don't store up wealth on earth. Store it up in heaven. How do you store up wealth in heaven? You know, the only thing that goes to heaven is people. The only thing that gets to heaven. Maybe dogs. I'm not sure. Not. Not cats, for sure. <laughs> and all my kids are at Bluffton today, so I can say this. Definitely not my dog, okay? I'm, I'd already sent it there. I'm just kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. She's a sweet baby. She's just hyper. How do Christians live in this world? Now, we know from Scripture that there are wealthy Christians. And so again, you guys know this, but let's just say it to get it out here. The sin is not wealth. Money is not the root of all kinds of evil. You know this. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. So for instance, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.17, he says, As for the rich in this present age. So Paul is addressing rich people in the church. Charge them not to be haughty. As the wealthiest society in the world, you are not to be haughty. 
Don't set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't rest in your money. Don't make your life about how much you can attain and how comfortable you can get. But set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So who provides? Not your skill set, not your intellect, not your ability to network or market. Every gift that you use to gain wealth is a gift from God that he can give and he can sure take away. God richly provides for you. Then he says, you are to do good, be rich in good works, and to be generous, ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for, them, for themselves as a good foundation for the future. By being generous as a church, we need to make sure that we tear down the idol of loving wealth and that we, we step into generosity. We are prosperous people. What are we going to do with our wealth? I suggest let's get some people saved, man. Let's plant some churches. Let's get behind some missionaries filled with the Holy Ghost laying hands on the sick. I suggest we rally our resources, dedicate them to God, and say, God, use us in this hour. Who cares how much we store up and try to drag in the casket with us? I'd like to see the drunkard bow to Jesus. I'd like to see the addict confess Jesus as Lord, find freedom and deliverance. I want to see the sick man healed, the oppressed delivered, and the gospel of salvation by faith alone, according to the cross of Christ, the shed blood of the Lamb, declared from the four corners of the earth. I'd like to see this nation not just turn to righteousness, but turn back to the gospel. So Paul teaches us that, again, that wealth is not in and of itself evil, but that you need to be very, very careful You need to be careful. It's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what the scripture says. You have to be careful to not let money grab hold of your heart. I'm not talking out of my ears here. I tithe for this reason. I I believe in tithing. I'm going to give to missions. Jesus says, give to anyone who asks of you. Every time something comes up, I say to my wife, how much money do we got? Because we need to give. When, when, when there's a tragedy or when there's a missionary and I'm, I, 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 I need to be generous, not just because I value generosity, but because I do not want to be a slave to the pursuit of wealth. Generosity is the tool by which I dethrone the idol of success, wealth, and prosperity. So these landowners are wealthy and they're watching their neighbors go hungry and suffer. And James is saying, where's the compassion? Where's the value for human life? Where's the insistence on the image of God and the dignity of human life? So with the declaration of a prophet, he says, your wealth has rotted. Your garments are eaten. He's saying, this is the such prophetic language. He says, you fatten your hearts for the day of slaughter. It's the idea of a of a of a of livestock. You know when you when you if you ever had cows or horses, whatever you you feed them and they all run and fight over the food. It's the idea of of one animal consuming all the grain, and getting real fat, be the first to lose its head. You're 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 fattening your hearts 
for the day of slaughter. You're storing up judgment for yourself. That's Pauline language. You're storing up judgment for yourselves for the day of judgment when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God says, justice is coming, vengeance is mine, and we are, from this text, coming to a place where we need to be sure that our hearts are stamped with eternity, that we value human life and the, and the proclamation of the gospel and serving the poor and bringing the kingdom through planting churches and giving to missionaries, that we value those things much more than we value personal comfort. John Calvin pointed out, and rightfully so, we'll dive into this a bit next week, that, that James is rebuking the landowner in front of the Christian because he's telling the Christians, you just hold on a little while longer. You're oppressed, you're tired, you're poor, your kids are going hungry because of the oppression. You just hang on for another minute and God's got to deal with this. So there is a sense when, in which God's, or James is warning the rich and he's encouraging the poor. Life is short, it's quick, keep giving, keep being generous, keep serving, keep working hard. There is a day coming when every man will stand before God. Worship team, come for me. Application. Again, if, if, if you look around your neighborhood, and I've got bad news for you. These neighborhoods are not the norm around the world, okay? If you look around your neighborhood, and nobody tithes, nobody cares about the poor, and no one gives, and everyone's goal is the, the nicer car and the bigger boat, and the better house, and everyone's standings on the basis of their material goods, if you look around and you say, oh, this is what life is, and I'm going to live like everyone else, you will not stand before God and say, I lived like my neighbors. God doesn't care if you live like your neighbors. He's asked you to live like Jesus. He's asked you to obey the holy word of God. And our lives are short and quick and we need to make sure that we're investing our lives well. We want to remember that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And that loving money will make us blind. You will miss gospel opportunities. There will be people who are suffering. Who could use uh, some help in the natural and how many of you know that God opens our eyes to see natural suffering so that we can step in and bless and bring the gospel of truth? There are orphans in our community who not only need a home, but they need a home so that a mother and father will share with them the perfect love of God in Christ Jesus. You will miss gospel opportunities by living self-absorbed. I think it's a natural application from this text, just, just to say it quickly. If you're a business owner in the room, if you have employees in the room, it should, folks in our community who work for Christians should be blessed. I understand that sometimes when you're doing a budget, there's not plenty of money to go around and, and you're starting a new business and things are tight and, but if you have the means to, to honor your employees financially, Christians should care for those who are under them. The, the unbeliever in, in this community should say, if I was you, I'd find a Christian boss. That doesn't mean we we don't value work ethic. If they don't work hard, fire them. But if you got folks who are working hard, who are serving, if you have the means to bless, you need to we need to bless. 
a good question for you to ask with your spouse if you're single to, to ponder in the in the prayer closet is what standard of living is appropriate because you guys know this we all know this this is actually like a, a sociological truth as you make more money you spend more money right you make more money and you you, you just spend more and it's at some point it's good to stop and say what what at what point do we make more money and just give more how how much is enough and and what is what is god honoring those are, those are good questions to ask. I can't answer that question for you. I can't. Not my job, not my duty, not my business, to be honest with you. That's that's a question that you you and your spouse need to bring before the Lord. How do we honor you with our finances? But I can say this. If you have no intent on giving, on tithing, if you have no intent on giving to missions, on serving the broken, if you have no intent on blessing members in the body when they're going through seasons of suffering, You've got an issue in your heart. And I wouldn't want to be you. Not only when it comes to judgment, but I wouldn't want to be you today. When Jesus says, um, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul, he absolutely has in mind final judgment. There's no doubt. But I would... I obviously believe theologically in hell. I believe in hell. I have a very traditional view on hell. Um, but... It's, it's not like you live a perfectly peaceful, joyous life and then you experience hell after death. Uh, hell starts here. You hear what I'm saying? You, you start losing your soul here. And I don't want to be you. If you live life just trying to seek money and pleasure, I don't want to live that way. Don't want to live that way. You, 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 hell starts here. So why don't you stand to your feet? I want to share with you a prophetic word, a, a word that um, one of our prayer ministers had as she was praying for us this week. She said this, um, I'm paraphrasing, but she essentially said, I feel like God's leading us into a new season. I feel like God's calling our church to a new place of anointing and power that we're getting ready for the new year. And in the new year, God is saying there's going to be new, new blessing and new power. And then she said this, But with a new season and a new year, God is asking us for a new level of surrender and sanctification. And I think it goes along with this word because I think many of us in the room, and I think it's, again, what's normal culturally. Many of us in the room, you'll say, I want to care for my family. I want to bless my wife. I want to live godly. Don't talk about money. I, I, I will, I will come to church. I'll tend to small group. I'll do all the things, but don't you touch my money. And I, th- I think God might be calling us today to say, um, I'm going to take you to a new place, but I'm going to touch everything. All of your life must belong to God. Every bit of it. And whether you whether you ever recognize it, it's the only way to live. It's the only place where there's real joy and peace is when God owns everything. Now, as we alter ministers, if you guys want to get in place... There was a word this morning that someone's dealing with an issue in the shoulder, left shoulder. Um, the word was that someone's got a left shoulder out of place. You ride a motorcycle um, and you're struggling to, to kind of do that. If that's you, we want to pray for you this morning and believe that God can heal. And there, there was one more word that we need to get in the deep end. We need, to, we need to go all in with God. I think that goes right with this theme of sanctification, of surrender. We need to go all in. So this morning as we open the altars, I just want to ask you, maybe money's not the thing. I think there are some of us, money is the thing. I just want to ask you, is there an area of your life where you, where you haven't wanted God's finger to touch? 
And, and if that's you, I want to ask you to come to the altar today. I want you to open your hands and I want you just to pray, God, I give you all of me. Maybe you've just been tempted, tempted to close your fist, tempted to live selfish. You just need to get in the altar today and say, God, you have all of me, every bit of me. If that's you, I want you to come. I want you to come now. I don't want you to hesitate.